Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? with me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television and theatre about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one I'll be trying to find out about the preparation, the excitement and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. Having started her career primarily as a theatre actor, Anne-Marie Duff is perhaps best known by many people for her award-winning depiction of Fiona Gallagher in Channel 4's Shameless. The Magdalena Sisters was a harrowing 2002 film written and directed by Peter Mullen about three shamed teenage girls sent to the Magdalena Sisters asylums by the Catholic Church in Ireland. Anne-Marie played the lead role of Margaret Maguire and I was fascinated to catch up with her during lockdown to talk about it. So Anne-Marie, I just wanted to just... Uh, First of all, thanks for doing this, but also just to tell you a little bit about why I wanted to do it is, um, you know, I know things are different now for young actors coming out. There's lots of sort of stuff online. But when I was starting out, it felt like the job was such a mystery. I just didn't know anything about it. I didn't know the things I didn't know were so surprising of just how to learn a script, how to get a job, how to, you know, I just knew I loved it, but I didn't know the mechanics of it. And because of that, it felt like it wasn't a job for me or it wasn't a profession for me. It felt like yeah. other people did it. So I just wanted to demystify it a little bit, uh, given the fact that it is a profession and it's a job and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's such a, we're becoming more and more aware of the whole notion of if you can see it, you can be it. And I think that's so important for young people. Yeah, you can come yeah. from backgrounds like you and I, you know, just that, they don't have that sense of entitlement or even just the dialogue of it in the background. It was like you say, it was so, it was so unknown for us. It was such uncharted territory. So just even just walking onto a film set or into a rehearsal or into drama school, you know, you're just like, it was, you just were waiting for the jig to be up for someone to go, excuse me, I'm so sorry. I think you've come into the wrong, you know. And, and the fact that we're still doing that as well, I still do that. Get away with it. <laughs> But also now I think there's a diff, there's another thing where is and that it might have been true when we were starting out, but that there's a difference between celebrity and acting, and it's that sense of looking at acting as a job and a profession and how, how what one needs to sort of be that as opposed to celebrity, which is 
either a byproduct of what we do or something completely different. No, I totally agree. I'm just going to do something. I just realised our fish tank is bubbling away. It's probably really... Don't kill the fish. Don't kill the fish. I won't kill the fish, but I think it'd be all right if I turn the filter off a little bit. Okay. There. I think that's probably better, isn't it? That's much better. Sorry about that. I just realised, sort of like, what is that? Is that the toilet? Um, Yeah. Yes, I do. And also, there's a huge pressure on young actors to kind of billboard themselves. So they're all on social media. It's like a requirement. It's not a lifestyle choice. It's absolutely a requirement. There's a lot of jobs where I was talking to some young actors recently who work a lot in musical theatre, and they were saying that the producers would check up on their social media to make sure that they're garnering enough likes or whatever. And it's that thing of branding yourself. You become a brand, and that's very dangerous, I think. I think it is because it makes you cynical, you know, and it makes you try to, you know, it makes you focus on strategy instead of craft or something. Yeah. And also, that, all that external affirmation bullshit. It's hard enough being an actor worrying about people, people's approval. Just getting a job is all about approval, ultimately. And then if you're worried about that already, Bloody Nora. So like, let's get on to it then. So it's the Magdalena sisters we're going to talk about. Your character was Margaret. Yeah. Uh, it's an amazing film. I'm so glad to see it again. I saw it when it came out, but I watched it again recently when I knew we were meeting up. So it blows me away. It's still very, very powerful. But just let's go back just before you got the job. Where you're, you're about five years out of drama school. Where are you in your career when this starts to come? Like there's a rumour that this job might happen. Well, I was, actually, I was about seven years out of drama school, yeah, because I was 30 when I did Magdalene Sisters. I was a lot older than the rest of the cast. Um, and I, so I'd been doing lots and lots of theatre. The odd sort of costume drama on TV, because if you worked in the theatre, that was kind of what you did, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'd done all this incredible theatre, which was where my priorities lay generally. Um, that's what I'd always dreamt about doing. And I loved independent film and especially European film. Um, and, um, and I'd worked in Ireland. I had this amazing gift, which came where I did a BBC adaptation of John McGahan's Amongst Women. And I got this chance to work in the country where my mum and dad are from. And it was, uh, it was delicious, you know, on so many levels. And so I kind of became known as being sort of Irish. So that, so that was it really. And, and the extraordinary thing about Peter's film was that they had these huge open auditions. So they saw thousands of young women for the film. And anybody who had like a touch of shamrock in them was sent in to go and improvise you know and I was like well now we're gonna get it you know and I went in and Peter's brother Lenny was the casting director and so we all went to this place in Soho one of those offices in Soho and sat down and he had a video camera and we kind of all improvised and I did that and thought well that was that you know nothing will come of that because I'm not the full paddy first of all I'm a bit too old and I'm already a theatre actor he you know he'd just been working 
just done My Name is Joe. You know, he was amazing. Worked with Ken Loach, Peter. So I thought he's just going to go all out authenticity. So he really had no, I lied about my age. I remember thinking, well, what the fuck? So I said, yeah, I'm 26. <laughs> I was 30. And, um, and I'd never done that in the job uh, um, interview before. So it's really, and I think that's the annoying thing. It's like falling in love, isn't it? When you're not looking for it, it arrives. Um, I had that sort of sense of, well, it's not for me. So I was probably super relaxed. And is that, do you often feel that, that it's not for me? Is that, a, is that a familiar feeling or was it specific for this job? I think it was, I think it's generally in film a familiar feeling. I think that's, ironically, I remember hearing Daniel Day-Lewis say this once in an interview. <laughs> he, of movie star, he said, you know, for young British actors, you feel like the movies don't belong to you. And I think that's true, you know, unless you look like a supermodel or something mm-hmm. as a female. Um, uh, and so I, uh, it was kind of a, an art form that I admired and studied, but never suspected that I would be part of in a way. Um, so yeah, so I forgot about it. And then I think about three months went by or something. And there was a phone call saying, could you be in Glasgow tomorrow? Because Peter's doing the final round of auditions for the film. And I went up and he said to me, it was, and we had this private meeting, the two of us, where we went through the whole script, the whole yoke, not a, just a bit of improv, the whole script. And it was this beautiful script. I mean, I can't tell you. Just you sat down and you read it on your own in the room and then you went in and worked with him. God almighty. Is that the first time you'd read the script then, about second call? Yeah, because I knew the premise. I knew what it was about. And I knew about the laundries because of my family and my grandmother had had an experience of working in one of the laundries. So it was one of those things you knew about, you know, a bit like all those things, the industrial schools, all of those things we knew about, you know. And um, so we did the whole thing. And then at the end of it, he said, he looked at me and he went, well, look, he said. And he said the thing I thought, I tried to be Ken Loach, he said. But I found this particular character really hard to cast. He said, and I kind of think you are her. And I was like, <laughs> I'm so fucking surprised and completely taken aback and thrilled, obviously. And uh, that was it. I got the job. You know, it felt like, it really felt like one of those, I suppose in a way, because he plucked so many girls that, were in, that are in the film, apart from Eileen, he plucked so many young women who had never acted before. So I had a similar experience in a way, not that I was plucked from the middle of nowhere and put in the middle of a movie. It was just that I wasn't expecting it at all, you know. And from that, from when he said you've got the job, how long did you have then before it started physically, the job itself? Just a few months, not long, about, yeah, a couple of months, I think. And in that couple of months, what are you doing as an actress to prepare yourself to go to work? Are you, you're not having uh, rehearsals at that point. You're just waiting to go. Are you doing research background? You say your family knew about the Magdalena laundries already and stuff. Are you now reading it? Are you, because it is based on true testimonies. Do you get to meet the women? Do you get to talk to the actual people? Well, I did start doing research um, and also write my characters because they weren't, like you said, they were, it was kind of gathered information that created each of those young women rather than it being, well, you are this person. Um, so you had to sort of invent your life story, which is one of the best bits in it. That's always really fun. Um, and 
so I did that work and I did as much research as I could and also like you say I spoke luckily I had people I could call and ask well family people yeah and I mean that was that's a real gift you know to get that first hand and what was their opinion of of because it's interesting because the, the last laundry closed in 96 what was their opinion of the laundries and the girls who were in there and the women who were in there it's family it's really interesting because it was a real sort of split, you know, between people who were a bit like, well, there's no smoke without fire and all that old bollocks, you know. And then people who just were so angry with the church that they were delighted that the story was being told. Um, I, you know, but there was still, even I can say this now because my granny passed away last year, um, but she... You know, she was very clear to tell me, yes, she had worked at a laundry, but she wasn't one of those girls. And she, however, would be a sympathetic, kind soul. But, you know, still. I still had that stigma for even her. Yeah, it was cute. I, I, and I remember, you know, going to the very first audition and um, there was a young actor there and her mother had been in the laundry like properly in the laundry and had a child taken. And um, it was just so sort of alarming, you know, that I could be sitting beside somebody whose mum had had that experience, you know, mm -hmm. like you say, such recent history. And she was super young, you know, she was like 19 or something. It's terrifying, really. But yeah, during that time, that's what I did. I did loads of research. And, um, <clears throat> and are you writing a book at that point? Are you writing your character's history? Yeah. So I've got, you know, I've got all these notebooks from all my different jobs over the years. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was great actually. The Is that just for you? Do you not share that with anyone? Is that just your personal bible of knowing where you are? It kind of depends on each project, doesn't it? Because sometimes a director's like, "Tell me everything. I want everything, and I need everything. And if you haven't done your homework, I'll know." Um, but the piece was a bit like so. I started bringing that up, thinking he would talk about, it, and he was like, "No, no, no, darling, no." <laughs> He was like, I want you to have that, but I don't need you to share it. Thank you very much. So, um, yeah, so, but I did, uh, you know. And then, of course, you make a few gear shifts when you're in situ and you go, oh, actually, that maybe wasn't such a useful choice, you know. Forget about that. And do you use things like um, the testimonies that you've read in your research, but do you use things like photographs or anything like that that gives you that background of the time? Yeah, uh, that's a, you know, it's a beautiful period for photographs in the 1960s because there's still so much black and white, so it's so evocative. And and, um, and I knew that she was rural, you know, and my mother uh, comes from Donegal, incredibly rural community. And um, so I, I had a lot of that imagery in my head, you know, um, mm -hmm. And also just the idea of Catholicism and what it, you know, I am, well, I was, I'm not anymore, if I'm brutally honest, uh, Catholic. And um, so I have that, that comes easily to me. Um, the understanding of that, the, the shame dialogue comes easily, you know, yeah. and those things. So, so sometimes you have these things for free, don't you? You know, when you're working and, and you you can really then be forensic about them and say, well, ah, so how does, how has that affected me actually as a young woman or, <clears throat> you know, how am I different 
to the way that it would have affected my mother's generation, you know, so all of these things um, I, I, I were gifts in a way. And you've been working on your own before the film starts for a couple of months. When do you, when do you first all get together? And is there a rehearsal period or are you straight onto the floor? What happened in that one? So Peter called us... Because here the, the weird thing about this film is that we had to film it in Dumfries. And the first and most important reason was nowhere in Ireland would let us film it. Because it was kind of the first film, really. There were a couple of projects, obviously, but this was the first sort of like film that was being made about this story. And it was being made by someone from another country you know, and all of that. So it was quite, you know, it was, it was flammable. Yeah. So, uh, so we made it in Scotland, but also because we had, there was a foot and mouth scenario at that time. There was all sorts of these weird obstacles that got in the way. So anyway, we all go up to Dumfries and Peter has found an old empty convent for us to film it in, you know, so we were amazing. So we go up and we have a solid week's rehearsal. He doesn't rehearse any of the scenes because that's not the way he works. But we all got to know each other. He took us to any locations that we might need to see. And we just kind of, I think he was most interested because he had a lot of very inexperienced actors, most interested in us getting rid of any distance between us. I mean, Jesus God, the time where we have so much distance between us, but but it was all about losing, you know, and understanding proximity and all of that. And that was. And is that easy for you to do? Is it easy to sort of meet a bunch of people? And I mean, there is something that we do as actors is we 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 have a facility to become a certain level of intimacy very quickly because we need, we know that that's what we have to do. But you were dealing with non-actors at that time. Was there a difficulty in that? Um, they would be much more shy, of course. One of the cast is a brilliant actor, Eileen Walsh, and she and I were the most experienced, you know, and so we immediately kind of had a dialogue and had a joke that we could share, you know, Um, and the others were a lot shyer and also a lot younger. You know, I felt a lot older because they were all 20 or whatever, and I was 30, you know, I'd lived a lot of life since. And um, so that was kind of interesting and, and... Refreshing too, you know, and um, and it was so. I suppose it was up to Eileen and I, in a way, to be to set the the tone, you know, to be a bit bolder. I mean, generally, I don't find it too difficult because I understand actors. Um, I sort of get us. When I was very very, when I was just starting out, it was terrifying because, you know you have that thing that people will think you're inexperienced and stupid, you know, and, and then quite often when you're young, you're very self-righteous and passionate about the point of art. And um, sometimes people can kind of stamp on that a little bit, mm. which you feel like you don't have a voice or something, but, um, but yeah, in that environment, it was different. It was, it had a very different energy and I was new to it. Like I say, I wasn't some big film actor, so I was new to it too. So we were Did it help that Peter was an actor, do you think? Yeah. So he totally got the process, of course, and could be a brilliant acting teacher for people who needed it. You know, he was really, and even for me, like, 
he would just give the best notes ever. I mean, I've talked about this before, but I'll never forget. He's just said to me one day, you know, stop worrying about being interesting. You know, just being alive, just breathing is interesting. Just remember that. Mm. And it's a great thing I've always tried to hold on to. And or he'd whisper in your ear, what are you thinking? What are you really thinking, though? I need to know what you're really thinking. And all of those little challenges, because he knew that you knew how to do it. So he was able to go, come on now, no, 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 no. Mm. Um, and um, because it was really, you know, it was shot on film. And so there was, there was you know, there was a limited stock. It was very low budget independent film. It was shot on actual film, you know, and it was just before the brilliant enabler of digital movie making, which means, which is in such a equalizer and, and, you know, made film a much more egalitarian environment. But at that time, you know, it's like he only had a finite amount of takes on each scene or shot. And that meant you had to really step up. But also it meant that we really rehearsed everything. We really rehearsed it and then shot and we didn't know where the camera would be. He would just put the camera anywhere and you played the scene exactly the same. There was no, you need to change this for a close-up scenario. It was just right. everything. Right? Correct. Um, you know, which was also great for the young actors who weren't versed in um, film shooting speak and didn't know, you know. You were on all the time, basically. There was no sort of downtime, yeah. Yeah, so the camera could swing at any moment and you'd be, you know, even if you thought you weren't. And just let's talk about Margaret. Tell me a little bit about her story, how she finds herself in the, the laundries. What happens to her a little bit? Um, well, she is a young woman who is... We decided that she was 16, nearly 17, and that she is at a cousin's wedding and she is raped by another cousin. And that event, as it would, changes her life irrevoc irrevocably. Um, and uh, she's, uh, man, she's blamed for the event in the way that, you know, still a bit of that about. And, um, and so uh, as a result, she's taken away from her community and put into one of these laundries. And these laundries were set up by a Catholic church, nuns around them. And they were environments in which they did exactly what it says on the tin. They would do the laundry for the local town or there would be laundries in cities like Dublin had them. Um, and they would be working laundries that were staffed by young women of ill repute, or they could be generally unwanted young women, you know, whether they was, had disabilities or they were seen as being a bit something, or they had, they were orphan girls, you know, so and she ends up there. She's put there because the priest thinks that's the safest place for her, because presumably there's something about her which causes badness in boys or something but do you think it was it did, it, that's interesting but was it a safe place for her or was it a safe place for the men she might tempt yeah definitely the latter mm. and it's just that sort of sort of uh, you know the cultural refusal of culpability for boys you know and it's sort of the infantilizing of mm. boys and men you know 
but they can't help it. Um, and and shame about family shame as well, isn't it? Family, absolutely. You know, she brought shame on her family. I mean, I felt re- watching it again. I felt how prescient it is, and how it's a, it's something that is still very much at the heart of our society. That it's not gone away. We might try to deal with it differently or believe that we're sort of above all that but actually it's really right here right now you know the circumstances might be different like the laundries or whatever but the idea that it's your fault what i'm feeling is very much um oh my god today one of the awful things about sexual violence is that it is the ultimate control and it's the ultimate threat if you're a female or a child Mm. and this is sort of, I heard somebody talking about this the other day, actually, and they were saying about the whole, it, it was a man, and he was being brutally honest, but of course it's terrifying sometimes, and he was saying, you know, as a man, you would not, even though you knew a woman had proved that she'd been raped and you felt desperately sorry for her, there's an element of you that would never want to be alone in a room with her. And it's just heartbreaking, and I also heard someone say that about children who've been victims of child abuse somebody said yeah be hard there was a man you could never be in the room on your own with them mm-hmm. and there's so it's still even though there's sort of like a kindness in those people there's still an element of yeah but can't trust can't trust that person yeah. you know and it's their fault and it's their fault the, the, what they evoke in me is their fault oh, you, you you feel that you're moving forward and then you, you know, and then if you're, uh, you know, look at women in refugee camps, they're constantly having to protect themselves and their children. You know, it's like, totally. It's and in just, many, many communities, I think, around the world as well, you know, right here, all over. We'll be back with more chat after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time with me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. But I think the film deals with that brilliantly well. And, you know, the, the, the idea that you are all, all those women in there are vulnerable people and uh, they're being punished for their vulnerability. But again, just from a technical point of view, in that first week before you're starting filming or in the early days, you've got an actress there in Geraldine McEwen who is so, um, you know, she's so famous, really, particularly for people inside the business. You know, she is, she's playing someone who is torturously horrible to you. She is uh, so experienced. How are you as a young actress go actor going into uh, to that? How are you feeling about that? I know. I was so excited to be working with her because I'd been working at the National Theatre a couple of years before when she was working on a restoration comedy. So she was in the building, you know. And so for me, I was just desperately starstruck. And also just because of the work that she, you know, her fucking CV is extraordinary. And... Um, and it was curious because most of the girls who were in the film, not a clue who she was. A, they're Irish, so she's yeah. not as much part of their life. And also they were so young, you know, and uh, had barely been to the theatre ever. Um, so, yeah, I was. And she was so, I mean, she's, she was the most beautiful woman, just the most extraordinary actress and always and ever wanted notes and took them and worked with them and just seemed to be so thrilled to be there. You know that way when you, you know this, when you work with actors who have great longevity and great talent, which you don't always get both, you know, they work so hard and are so in love with what they do. Mm-hmm. And she, she really had that. And, um, and, and she was very patient and very... Which, you know, but she got the quality of none so brilliantly, you know, she really did. That's but did she mock in? I mean, did she mock in with you all? Was she part of the company? There wasn't, she wasn't uh, to the side of it or in any way? She was kind of separate just because she was generationally so separate. Right. And she needed her space and all of those things. But it wasn't a dislocation. She was very much, you know, she would talk to, and we kept it, we all kept in touch with her right up until she passed. Yeah. Uh, Dorothy Duffy, the blonde actress who plays right, Rose, yeah. so beautifully, uh, she took her under her wing completely. She did, yeah. And Dot and she, she took her to the theatre all the time. She helped her get an agent in the UK. She, I mean, she was just that person, you know, and which is what you hope to be, you know, to to be able to share the jewels, you know. That's what you want as you get on. And uh, she was a great example and a great leading lady, yeah. Great. And do you, I mean, obviously one always feels responsibility for your characters, but given this story particularly and given the fact that, you know, it's based on real testimonies, uh, it was based on something that hadn't long stopped. You know, the last laundry was closed in 96 and the film came out in early 2000. So did you feel an extra responsibility to story and character with this? We really did, all of us, actually. And because Peter's technique 
was to film chronologically, which of course is the actor's wow. dream. Bring a nightmare for producers and logistics and whatnot. But mm-hmm. I mean, it was helped by the fact we were in that one location pretty much. But we filmed in story order. And that meant that people became really invested in it properly, not just the actors, but every single member of the crew. It was so powerful, just feeling the story unfold and the temperature rises and falls and, you know, and and having that affect every department. It was really powerful. But, yeah, I mean, whenever you tell a story that is somebody's testimony, you're making them come to life. Otherwise, those people don't exist. That's the thing. That's the trouble, isn't it? So it's you do feel the life giver. You feel the pressure to do it well. And But also within that course, there's a great freedom because you see the point of what you do. So it takes pressure off. You get rid of all of the shenanigans, anything to do with all of the stuff that doesn't matter. To do with, oh, am I this enough? Am I that enough? Am I do? Do I look beautiful? Oh, all of those things go out the window, don't they? Which is very releasing, and um, yeah. and it goes right. So it's very essential. Your work becomes all about truth and authenticity and all of those lovely things. You've told this particular film in continuity order, which is wonderful. That's not the. Uh, how things are usually done when you tell when you're in a film where the continuity is all over the place just talk a little bit about how you deal with that when uh say you have to do your final scene in the first week or whatever how different is that for an actor to prepare continuity wise um it's just it's it can be very tricky um because if like you say it can be six weeks between a breath, you know, um, and so it's a sort of muscle you develop, isn't it? When you're filming, you kind of try and hold and you get, you know, there's a person on set called a script supervisor and they, or continuity person, I think they used to be called now, course, course, as well. and then it's great to develop a really good relationship with them so that you can constantly be talking to them and where were we and, I feel like I was, and also ultimately you don't know which is tricky because you don't know, you could have filmed a moment five different ways and you have no idea which of those ways the director is going to decide in the edit is the best. And so then moving forward and doing the next beat or the moment before you walk through the door or the moment after you leave the room and, and knowing which would be an appropriate bookend to that moment is really difficult. and. So you kind of have to, it's a sort of a leap of faith. You kind of just have to go for it and trust that somewhere on a cellular level, you're still holding on to what you came up with before, you know? It's tricky though. It is very tricky, but yeah, I, I tend to lean on people as well. I think I used to be worried that in some way I'd failed if I did that. Oh my God, you know, that I had no fucking integrity or something. And But as years go by, you go, no, but that's the point of their job. And it's exciting to really see how they've invested in each moment and remember exactly what you did or, you know, all of those. I think that's a very important point because going into, as a younger actor, I always felt that I needed to know everything. And if somebody said to me, asked me a question, I needed to know the answer. 
I needed to be prepared. I, there was something about failure or, or you know, being seen that I was frivolous or, you know, I wasn't serious enough for the role. And that included things like continuity and prop. And I learned that it's all right to say, I don't know how to do this. It's all yeah. right to say, what's this about? Or, you know, to be, you're not, you're not, the, there's other people there to do those roles in a way. So lean on them and that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of humility that comes with wisdom, ironically, mm-hmm. you know, because there was a gorgeous, I remember there was a gorgeous moment when we were filming and, um, the trolley that you move a camera around on is a dolly, you know, you know. and uh, there was one moment where somebody had said something like, it's, do- it's a dolly, dollies are the way I can't see or something. And Dorothy stood up and went, I'm so sorry. My name's Dorothy. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Me that. I thought, that's it. Nobody's ever said to that poor woman. Yeah that big yoke over there that the camera sits on with wheels because that's what happens nobody thinks oh this person doesn't have a clue nobody ever walks you around the set on the very first day of filming and says now this is this person and this is what they do and this is you know nobody does so you're just thrown in it's like being thrown into the deep end of a swimming pool and expected to swim and it's all right to ask questions that's the other thing is just ask 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 oh. questions what is this how is this what do i do now do it. that's fine and also it makes people feel really valued because you say, excuse me, what is it you do? And they go, me? Well, I do this. I'm really proud of what I do. You know, and you kind of forget actually it's a gift, a question in a way, you know. I wanted to come on to, you know, this is a very, there's lots of scenes in this film which are very harrowing and tough. Uh, as you say, Margaret is goes to the is sent to the laundries because she's raped, and there's the rape scene is in the film. There's a there's a very moving and upsetting scene where all the girls are being are naked and being ridiculed by the nuns. As an actor, what do you? How do you prepare for those particular scenes? I know nowadays we have like intimacy coaches, mm-hmm. but not they're not prevalent. They're not all over the place. No. But how do we? Um, Again, in that sense of asking questions, saying you don't know, there's a fine line sometimes between those those scenes. How do you protect yourself and still create at the same time? We were super lucky on that film because Peter knew how much of a father figure he had to be in a way to a lot of young women, you know. He knew what kind of a storyteller he had to be. He had to make sure that there was nothing titillating about any of it because it was a film about torture, you know, in that way. And we had the most incredible first AD, David Gilchrist, who was just so protective of all of us. So there was a sense of seriousness whenever we would be and respect whenever we'd be working on any of those scenes. And there isn't always on every job you do, because some people don't, for whatever reason, engage in that way. Um, But on that particular project, there really was. So you felt protected. So you didn't have as much of a job to protect yourself. And in other scenarios, you do. And... That can be very hard when you're young because you get confused and you think, 
if I'm not pushing myself into certain areas of discomfort, maybe I'm not really an actor or maybe I, you know, it's, um, or if I'm worried, does that mean that I'm not free as a performer or, you know, and you can tie yourself up in all kinds of knots, which is sadly, of course, why we've had so much abuse of power over however many years. Um, but it's, I think it's something you do learn. You do learn that this and no more, you learn that, but I think it Can takes it change. A- Is it changing? Do you think in your experience? Yeah, I think they really are. I've been working on um, sex education on for Netflix, and that is uh, obviously there's a lot of as your father in that, <laughs> you know. And they do have um, intimacy um, coaches coaches on on that that production. And I spoke to them about it, and I said because you and I know because we've done a sex scene uh, that you have to laugh the only way to get through it is to laugh through it and just go this is as absurd as it can get you know people always laugh when I take their clothes off I'm always a bit <laughs> <laughs> but you've got to or you'd go mad because it's just the most ridiculous scenario but Amy Lou who was in uh, sex ed was talking to me about it and she's saying the brilliant thing is and this we know because directors never want to direct sex scenes do they it was they're always like oh and then you do that Whereas they come in, these amazing coaches, and they say, so which bits of your body really do you not want to show? And the young people say, well, there's no way I want to show my boobs or oh, please don't show my bum, I'm really, or whatever. And they go, okay, fine. So let's choreograph this moment then. As, say, you would a, as you would a fight. As you would a bloody fight scene. And that's all it is. I mean, because a lot of people have been a bit reactionary about it, saying, oh, intimacy coaches, blah, 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 blah. Like it's, but it's, that's all it is. It's as simple as that. And saying, I'll tell you where the camera's going to be. Because you don't, I mean, we didn't, our generation, I didn't have a bleeding clue where that camera was going to be. And I was caught out a couple of times in shows. That I, thought, I thought we discussed that that wasn't going to be on display. And there it is, you know. So it's great. It's empowering. And it is protective and it's respectful you know and what do you in and not just in in um intimacy scenes or anything like that but what what do you require what do you need from a director in scenes where you are vulnerable in any way what do you what do you want them to bring to the to the set in order for you to you and your fellow actors to be able to be brave i think that's it you know what you've just said it's like being given the space to be brave, not expected to just do it because you want it to be so true, especially if you're telling someone's story, but you want it to be so true. You just want there to be a moment where you acknowledge that in a way. It's like, it sounds wanky, but it's like being in church and, you know, when the priest says, let us pray. It's just a moment, a collective moment of gathering. We just go, okay, here we go. And it's just that, it's just a settling, isn't it? Of going, all right, let's just respect this moment that we're about to share. I think that, I love that when that happens. And I've had to shout for it before now and go, can we all just shut the fuck up just for a minute, please? As I'm watching another actor struggling to get there. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's not easy sometimes. And like you say, it can be that, the rest of the story was told a month ago. Or you're and having... Sometimes, and sometimes it can be that, you know, it's uh, quarter to seven on a Friday night and everybody wants to get home. That's the trouble. Quite often you'll do the most difficult scenes at quarter to wrap 
won't you? You're just, and you're expected, come on guys, can we just, can we just, can we, and you're under such enormous amount of pressure to maybe film the most important scene in the whole shoot, mm-hmm. you know, and or that there's aeroplanes going over and you have to keep stopping. You have to keep stopping for sound or that the sun's gone in. Oh God, okay, okay. You know, you, you have a lot of these external pressures to just trying to be like a hummingbird holding on to all your shit. And it can be really, it's like a, it's like a real tightrope walk sometimes. But yeah, that's what you want. I guess that's what you want. You want your director to know what acting is. And how are you at uh, letting it go, letting the day go uh, on a film set? So you've done those scenes, you've been big old scenes, tomorrow you've got other things, in the car going back to the hotel or whatever. Uh, Can you let the day go that you've done? I mean, I find that very difficult sometimes uh, to move forward. I need need some sort of um, debriefing of myself in some way on those days. And also to protect myself and look after myself and things like friends and family come into play at that time as well. But uh, do you have a, any sort of routine or anything that you do in that way? I think I used to feel that I had to sort of force the day away and go off and socialise or whatever. And then as time went by, I kind of realised like you just said what I needed actually because I just kind of sometimes feel a bit of a sensory overload, not just of the story itself which can be quite full-on but also just the amount of information you're receiving just the amount of people that are around you you know and and sometimes you just have to go and be in a cave for a bit and go oh god I just need to be quiet and still just for a wee bit just to get back to myself um that's become more and more important to me um because I feel a I, I have this thing where I like to save my energy for the job. Yeah. And that's, I think that's very important. So I think that's really important that looking after your energy because, you know, particularly on a long job, uh, it can, it can get you. And we don't have the ability, which I think a lot of big Hollywood stars of just saying, I'm not working this week. I'm going off, you know, with our, our timetables in British TV and British film, we're all there to do the job with the time we've got. <laughs> Holy moly. And also, we're all phenomenally modest, us Brits, and we keep talking to everybody. And we go, oh, yes, somebody spoke to me. I'll have a conversation. A lot of American actors will go, no, I'm leaving now. I'm going to my trailer, and that's where I'm going to be. Whereas we go, oh, oh, I must talk to the guys. I must talk to the Sparks. I must talk to the... Because I'm, I'm a nice person, and I'm very down to earth, and I'm, you know, and we sort of overwhelm ourselves a bit with all of that stuff, don't we? Yeah, we, we do. It's culturally different. It's not frowned upon to go off and be by yourself mm. in America as much, you know. And there's a middle ground, isn't there? There's a way, I mean, I've learned it over the years, the way I can be f- friendly, I can still have a great relationship with the people I'm working with, but I can protect myself and my energy within that day as well. Yeah, you kind of learn that that's, you need to, you just learn that you need to do that, don't you? It seems the Magdalena Sisters seems to be a very harmoniously creative atmosphere. How do you deal with uh, clashes with directors over creative things, whether it's costume or your, the way your hair is or whatever it is, or even the way to play a scene? You know, I'm, I always feel I work for a director. I'm there to make their vision and the director and the writer's vision come to life. But 
how do you deal with creative conflict? Um, I tend to be a bit yieldy, if I'm honest. I think it comes from coming from theatre as well, because you sort of, it's kind of the, the environment is more that the director, the writer and the director are, are in charge. And um, I noticed that a lot with film actors that I know and have worked with, they tend to feel that they affect the day much more. And they'll come on set and say, well, I'm not saying this, they'll rewrite the scene and they'll say, this is how it's going to be. Whereas I'll be like, oh, no, I, I absolutely. So like you've just said, I trust somebody's panoramic view a bit more. And I generally find if you really get into it and talk to somebody, that they get what you want ultimately. I think if you're, you, if you question why you want something, if it's self-serving, if it's just about, because I think I'll look nicer, or if it's about, yeah, exactly, if it's about all of that bollocks, you will be found out. And generally speaking, the director will go there. I'm sorry, love, but no. I remember when we did Shameless, actually, I got into an argument with Mark Mylon, who was director of the, the first British and the first American Shameless, actually. And um, he was mad about this dress that he wanted me to wear for this, the, like an iconic scene in the first episode where I was in a nightclub. And I was adamant that it was not right. I didn't feel it. Did a little, little, and in the end, I wore it because I was like, "Ah, oh, fuck it." It's, uh, you know, I had a word with myself, and it's a dress, Henry. <laughs> it's not like a huge character choice. It's a dress, and of course, he was right. It was the perfect dress. Right. You know, and so silly wee things like that. You do have to have a word with yourself sometimes, as long as you're not being compromised or being made to feel that they really would rather have had somebody else. <laughs> you know, they're giving you yeah. choice. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I have that a lot where I think, oh, they're, they're, they're trying to make me the actor that they couldn't get and they got me instead. <laughs> so no. And, you know, uh, those type of insecurities, I think it's very important though what you said about really looking at yourself in the mirror and thinking, is this a choice that I'm resisting because I don't want to look bad? Yeah. David Morrissey doesn't want to look bad. Or is it a choice I'm resisting because actually, no, I don't want the character to be taken. You know, I want this... I want to be more vulnerable than that, or I want a different type of choice than that. And if I always know, actually, when I look at myself, which, which that choice. Absolutely, we always know. And um, like when you have lines in a script that you can't say, and then ultimately you go, yeah, but that might be the point, you know. I'm not, I'm not I can't say, I wouldn't say, you know, but the writer says you would. <laughs> So, um, and they came up with the character. So let's see. And sometimes they can end up being the moment that people always talk about and go, oh God, that bit with you. And you think, yeah. you know, um, because yeah, it's definitely. potentially the struggle is so exciting and interesting, you know. So just to wrap up, I just wanted to talk about a part of the job that we don't talk about that often. The Magdalena Sisters was a huge success. And it really did change people's opinions. And, and you know, it opened the Venice Film Festival, Peter yeah. the Golden Line. Did you go to Venice? No, I couldn't because I was working. Um, but okay. Jane and Dorothy did, who were the two girls in the film who'd never acted really before. So, in a way, it was brilliant that they got to do that, yeah. We, were, we did other festivals, but they did that one, yeah. How do you, how do you deal with success? Is it easy for you when something is well praised, when it's good, when you know, when everybody's saying it's wonderful and the, the plaudits are coming? How do you personally deal with, with that? Because it's that's difficult, isn't it? Sometimes 
I think it can be. I'm lucky that I'm the kind of actor who works on things that don't attract massively invasive attention. Sure. I think there are certain types of movies or TV shows that will. But mostly I just get people come up and talk to me about the projects I've worked on, which makes it a lot easier. It's difficult when you're with your kids, you know, as you know, you just think, oh, seriously, now is not appropriate. But um, I think that stuff aside, just like you say, the internal stuff of how you cope with it and the pressures it can put on you and you think, oh, the next project, I hope that's going to be. Yes. That's, all, that's, that's more of what I mean about the fact that you, you're climbing up in a way. And is it, is it harder to be braver when you've had success in a way? Is it, is the, is it, the, does it affect your choices? I think, I know people can get into sort of a headspace, can't they? If they've won an award or something of, oh, well, the next job better be something that gets me awards or I'll look like, you know, I've lost it. You can't, you've got to do your best really, haven't you, to just focus on, is it a good yarn? Is it going to be something I've never done before maybe? Or do I really want to work with these people? And, and all of those things. I'm quite lucky. I'm quite good at being, I'm lucky in as much as the, the competition that I have is sort of an internal competition. And I don't know why, <clears throat> but I've just been super lucky that I don't look over my shoulder. And I know lots of people who do, lots of really successful people who do actually always saying, well, why am I not that? Or, uh, and I don't have that. That's a gift, a freebie I got. Um, and, uh, and I also, I'm not sure why, get offered very different things. So I don't feel, the only trajectory I feel like I've ever had was that I started, it was very old-fashioned. I started off working in theatre slowly, slowly, did a bit of TV, slowly, 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 then... You know, it felt like that. So it's probably made it easier. In a way, I didn't have a lot to lose very quickly. Yes. And I think that's probably let some steam out of it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so it helps. And also um, you've had, you've really be, you know, you do choose work, A, in different mediums, but in different, you know, you challenge yourself for different creative roles. And I think that's really important for an actor, for any actor, is to sort of really get out of your comfort zone, for want of a better term. You know, really I guess, like, you know what, Dave? That's what I get asked. I would love to think I have complete fucking autonomy, but I don't. I just get sent really different stuff. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's, I don't know why. Who knows why? In a way, I don't want to sort of question it in a, in a way. You know, it's funny, isn't it? It sort of feels so superstitious about everything. But, yeah, I've never, I suppose the only thing that I could say is the through line is that generally speaking, I play women who are up against something. Mm -hmm. You know, who have, <clears throat> who are on trial in some way, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> and I think that's it. So, which is fortunate because they're the most interesting characters. Well, listen, it's a fantastic film. It's a brilliant performance, as they all are in that film, actually. I have to say, I was knocked out by it watching it again. And really then brilliant. And, um, and did make change. It brought change, you know, and that, and... And sort of, I think, you know, for the women that went through it, to have their story told was such an important part of that, uh, that tale. So thank you very much. And thanks for being part of the podcast. Oh, it's nice to be asked. Thanks, mate. Who Am I This Time? is a Just Voices and Dulali production. Produced by Simon Lenigan. Music by Greg Hatwell. Edited and mixed by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. And presented by me. David Morrissey.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.